Uh, but we are working our way through Luke's Gospel, and we're having a cafe service tonight because we're thinking about a dinner party when Jesus upset a lot of people by the controversial things he said and did. And it all started with a miracle. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was having dinner at the home of an important Pharisee. And everyone was carefully watching Jesus. All of a sudden, a man with swollen legs stood up in front of him. And Jesus turned and asked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? But they didn't say a word. Jesus took hold of the man, then he healed him and sent him away. Afterwards, Jesus asked the people, if your son or ox falls into a well, wouldn't you pull him out right away, even on the Sabbath? And there was nothing they could say. Sorry, Philippians 2, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. Christ encourages you, and his love comforts you. God's Spirit unites you, and you are concerned for others. Now make me completely happy. Live in harmony by showing love for each other. Be united in what you think as if you were only one person. Don't be jealous or proud, but be humble and consider, consider others more important than yourselves. Care about them as much as you care about yourselves and think the same way that Christ Jesus thought. Christ was truly God, but he did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Christ was humble. He obeyed God and even died on a cross. Then God gave Christ the highest place and honoured his name above all others. So at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow down, those in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And to the glory of God the Father, everyone will openly agree, Jesus Christ is Lord. Throw a party to celebrate the wedding of his son. And it was, was months in the planning, a huge amount of preparation went into it, the invitations were issued, and the time came when the, the, it was ready. It was the big day. And he sent his servants out to say, look, the banquet is ready, my oxen and fatted cattle have been slaughtered, everything's prepared. He sent his servants out to say to the guests, it's time to come to the wedding. We are ready and waiting for your arrival. Everything is prepared. The only thing missing is you. So the servants went out to the guests, and actually they didn't get too favourable a reception. They said things like, uh, oh, I've bought a piece of land, and I've got to go and see it. Please accept my apologies. And you know what it's like. One person thinks, it doesn't matter if I don't turn up. They won't notice me missing. But then the next person says, well, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please accept my apologies, which sounds a little bit rude because he could have tried those out the following day. Surely sounds a bit like an excuse. And the next person, I've just got married. And so I can't come, uh, which I guess is a copper bottom reason for not turning up. But the date had been in the diary for months and he could have said way in advance, look, I'm sorry, that's my wedding day. I can't show rather than the last minute just, just turning him down. And things went bad from bad to worse because there were those who were polite and made excuses about why they didn't want to come. And there were others actually who set upon the king's servants, beat them up and killed them, uh, which is a bit of a drastic reaction when you get an invitation 
to a wedding. And understandably, the king wasn't too happy with this reception that his servants received. And his response was to gather his army, uh, assemble troops and say, go and repay those who have killed my servants. So his army went out and all the people who had attacked and murdered his servants, the army attacked and murdered and put them to death and burned their city for good measure. And all this time, uh, the banquet was still there to be eaten. And so the king says, look, uh, I've got this meal. No one's going to come I invited because they're all dead. Uh, so this food's got to be eaten. So he says to his servants, go out into the streets and alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. They will have all of the food. So the servants went out and brought in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the nobodies, the people who had nothing, and, and they got to come to the banquet instead of the invited guests. But the, there was still room. It was such a magnificent design to be the event of the decade. And once kind of all the riffraff had come in, there was still space at the banquet. So the servant says, your instructions have been carried out, but there's still room. So the king says, go out into the country roads and the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Use brute force if necessary, but get them here. And so, at last, the king's uh, dining hall is filled with guests, the good, the bad, the indifferent, all enjoying a feast and having the time of their lives. But the king comes across a guest who isn't dressed properly. He's not wearing wedding clothes. And he says to him, friend... How did you get in here without wedding clothes? And, and the man has nothing to say. We don't know which batch of people he was, whether he was one of the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, couldn't afford wedding clothes, or whether he was one of those who was frog-marched in reluctantly into the banquet, but for whatever reason he hadn't got time Maybe he hadn't got the inclination to get changed. Maybe he didn't have the clothes to get changed into. Maybe, maybe there weren't clothes that he could put on. He, he says nothing in his own defence. And the king's response is to say, well, tie his hands and his feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a bit of a shocker, isn't it? As stories go. What is going on here? between the king and his people. Clearly, there is no love lost between the king and his guests. Some of them just don't want to come. Others are so hostile that they attack and murder the servants sent to tell them the feast is ready. And actually, I think the, the point of the story is it's all a matter of honour. Actually, the, the king has thrown this magnificent feast not because actually he has a good relationship with all the guests that he wanted to invite and he wants to do them good and, and give them a good time. This is his son's wedding. This is to be a prestigious event. Uh, everyone who matters is going to be there. And, and all the people who matter ought to be there as well. But they don't really want to come. Because although he's kind of top-notch in society, they really don't like him very much. And so some of them make excuses about not being there. Others respond without right hostility. And this, this is a huge affront to the honour of the king. I've invited you, you're not coming, 
what does that say about your attitude towards me? And, and the affront to his honour is such that he responds by slaughtering those who've treated them with such respect, disrespect, burning their city to the ground. But the problem remains, what's to be done with this feast? It's inconceivable that this banquet should go to waste. If word gets out that the food has, has gone bad because nobody ate it, he'll be the laughing stock of the country. The meal is ready, his son's getting married, there must be guests. So if the original guests reject the invitation, the king's reputation could be salvaged by an extraordinary act of generosity and beneficence. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame will enjoy the meal instead. And when they've been invited and there's still space, the servants are sent out forcibly to compel the people to attend because the hall must be full. It's a matter of honour. The king's son must have a wedding party to remember. And if the original guests are dead, then these other people will enjoy the party instead. But in Matthew's Gospel, one of the guests isn't properly dressed. No matter that he'd probably rather not have been there at all, but he's turned up and he's not dressed properly, he wasn't wearing a tie or whatever, and he's dishonoured the king by not wearing a wedding garment. And when the king finds out the reluctant, badly dressed man is bound hand and foot and cast cast into the outer darkness, clearly when it comes to saving his honour, the king has no scruples about resorting to violence. This is a big party, it's got to go well, you've got to be dressed properly, otherwise it's an offence in his sight. Back in the Middle Ages, a a theologian called Anselm wrote a work called Cur Deus Homo, which means why God became a human being. And he tapped into this whole idea of honour and developed a theory of the atonement, the meaning of Jesus' death, based upon this idea of honour. He lived in, a, in an era where the feudal system was in place. You had the, the landowner or lord who was in charge of everybody else, and under him were vassals or serfs who were nobodies. And there was a kind of reciprocal system of obligation. He looked after them, uh, made sure that they weren't attacked, made sure they didn't starve, just about. Uh, And they, in turn, provided him with honour and loyalty and reverence and respect and tribute. So he was good to them in one way and and they were good to him in another. And the stability of this social world rested on slavish fidelity and allegiance. And Anselm, living in that context, said, this is a picture of the relationship between God and people. God looks after us, the nobodies, and we are obliged to give him honour accordingly. The problem is that we've sinned, and we haven't given God the honour that is due, and that lands us in big trouble, because God's honour must be satisfied. And if we have failed to honour God as we should, uh, that lands us in trouble with God, and God could satisfy his honour, by slaughtering those who've dishonoured his name or imprisoning us in outer darkness, that would be one solution. His honour has been offended. Judgment is the response because God cannot allow the dishonour against his name to stand. But that's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus, as a human being, honoured God the way God needed to be honoured by living a sin-free life. On our behalf, he lived the life that we should have lived and failed to live. And more than that, he went above and beyond, not just living in a way that honoured God, but sacrificing his life as the highest honour he could ever offer to God. 
And how does God then respond to the son's sacrifice of his life? Because God's honour has now been satisfied by Jesus' life and death, that opens the door for him to be magnanimous. He can generously forgive our sins because the slight to his honour caused by our sin has been dealt with by Jesus' death on our behalf. That's why, in Anselm's eyes, God became a human being. That's how Jesus' death reconciled to God. We offended God's honour. God is angry. Jesus lives the life we should have lived. He honours God the way we failed to do. He honoured God so much satisfying God's honour that God could afford to be generous in forgiving our sins. It's a model of the atonement that worked well in a feudal context, where it was natural for people to see God as some kind of lord of the manor who had absolute power over his serfs who were expendable. The only thing that mattered was God's honour. But in these days, we look at that and think, really? Is God really like that? Is God like some kind of vindictive Lord of the manor who's only concerned about his own honour. And we look at the parable of the wedding banquet and think, I'm not sure I can relate to a God like that. If I had the invitation, I think I'd rather say, I don't want to come. Thank you very much. If that's the kind of person that you are. But let me take you back to Philippians chapter 2. Because here we see Jesus, who's equal with God, who shares God's honour, and he steps down from his throne. He divests himself of all honour. He humbles himself to be born as a human being, following the path of humiliation and shame all the way down to the lowest point imaginable, the utterly shameful death of being nailed to a cross. Does the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ stand upon his honour? No, he doesn't. Though we have offended him, he abandons honour and embraces our shame. He demolishes the whole culture of honour that puts a gulf between us and God and meets us on our level. And he invites us into his kingdom not to safeguard the honour of an offended deity or some lord of the manor. He invites us into his kingdom because he loves us and sets huge store by the life of every single one of us. So the bottom line is... Whatever you are ashamed about, of who you are, or what you've done, it doesn't matter. Because God has set aside the whole category of honour and shame. And he meets us where we are. And he welcomes you into his kingdom. Not because that makes him look good, but simply because he loves you. That's the difference Jesus made. And his invitation is not to make him look good. His invitation is genuinely for your benefit. It's there and the opportunity is open for us all to respond. Jesus takes our shame and invites us into God's kingdom. Because he loves us. It's the good news.